Welcome, everyone, to a special late-night episode of the Today's Focus podcast series. It is Tuesday. No, it's not Tuesday. It is Thursday, August the 3rd, 2023. It is currently 11.03 p.m. Central Time. And, well, you know where I broadcast from. It's not what I... I don't typically tell you where I'm broadcasting from for a Today's Focus. So welcome, everyone, to a special late-night episode of the Today's Focus podcast series. It's not Tuesday. It's Thursday. And all of a sudden, it just hit me. It's Thursday... It's just after 11 p.m. Central Time. Typically at this time, I would want to be doing something else, but here I am broadcasting. For those who know me, they know that you know I'm I'm a you know lifelong music fan. Well, that means new music is dropping right now on all the music streaming services. It's it's now 11:04 p.m. Central Time. So I I could have headphones on right now, listening to music. That may be more relaxing, maybe more pleasurable, maybe more fun. But here I sit behind a microphone doing a late night live broadcast for the Today's Focus podcast series. What do you think would motivate me to not be listening to music, but to be sitting here doing a live broadcast? What do you think would motivate me? My dedication to the things of God, my commitment to using technology to talk about theology and doctrine and every opportunity that I get. I mean, I could sit here and sell it. I could sell it like I'm so sanctimonious and I'm so holy and I'm so committed that while other people are sleeping, I'm broadcasting. While other people are sleeping, I'm here with a Bible in my hand and we're going to talk about doctrine and we're going to talk about theology. Because And I could really make myself seem so spiritual, but it would be all a facade. It would be all a lie. I am here because of anxiety. I am here because of worry. Because here's the real here's the real situation. If I was downstairs right now and if I was listening to music, my mind would be like, well, you know, you only did one broadcast today. And then you did that broadcast and and you kind of stopped in a weird place. It was kind of kind of not really the best place to stop. And you really need to finish that that review because, I mean, you're kind of like you were reviewing this and you stopped it. And the whole series that you've kind of been working on with anxiety and pride and pride and anxiety, it hasn't really flown right. It hasn't been flowing very well. It hasn't really, you know, you haven't really gotten into any kind of groove. It's kind of been, it, it hasn't really worked very well. And then you kind of stop that review. You, you know, what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? So then even if I was trying to listen to music, I'd be worried about this. And then if I decided, you know what, forget this, it's now too late. I can't go broadcast and I don't really want to listen to music because I'm so distracted. And then if I decided to lay down, then while I was laying down in the darkness of the night, laying there in bed, my mind would be like, you know what? You really need to get this done. And maybe you can wake up super early and then you can get that broadcast. And all it would be would be worry and anxiety and worry and anxiety. And I know you say, but you're a Christian. You should not worry. You you should just trust in the sovereignty of God. And you know what? I understand that I'm not to fret. I'm not to worry. I not I understand that I should not be anxious for anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication. I know this. But the reality is, I sometimes struggle with worry and anxiety. You could say sometimes I'm a very, um, 
I'm uh, I'm obsessed a little bit, kind of an obsess, obsess, obsessive compulsive type of thing. I won't go ahead and diagnose with an actual, you know, obsessive compulsive disorder. I won't go that far to say that, but there's definitely that as a part of my personality. I will obsess over something. It's very compulsive. And I'm just like, we'll sit there and go, I should get this done. I need to get this done. And hey, I've only done three broadcasts. Maybe I should have done five broadcasts. Or maybe maybe I did five. Maybe I should have done seven. And it, and it will. And, and I'm always trying to control it, finding the right perspective. And it's always difficult and I don't do a very good job. So I'm not going to sit here and act like that I'm here because I'm godly. I'm here because I struggle with kind of an obsessive, kind of a compulsive, kind of an anxiety type of situation. And we've been talking about that now for a couple of days. And a number of you have emailed expressing same things, been diagnosed with um, a anxiety disorder or maybe with some, you know, some obsessive compulsive uh, traits as well, maybe with even a full-blown disorder. Those things happen within Christianity. They happen within the church. Sometimes we stand in the pulpit and try to act like it's not the case and that we shouldn't be that way and we should just be, you know, content and godly. And we have it all together. It's those people out there who don't have it together. But the people inside the church, sitting in the pew, holding that Bible, who believe in Jesus, struggles with the exact same issues and exact same things that people in the world does. Whether we want to admit it or not, we can try to deny it, but it's the reality. Because we're human beings and we are, we are impacted and we are affected with mental health issues just like anybody else is. We, 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 we struggle with some of these issues, depression, discouragement, obsessive compulsive, compulsive obsessive, yeah, however you want to, to word it, whichever part speaks most to you, the obsessive part or the compulsive part, whichever, whichever speaks more to you, anxiety disorder, whatever. What, we, we deal with these issues. And we understand that many of these are actual mental health issues. These are disorders that in many cases have causes that are directly linked to other things like uh, anxiety disorder can be uh, directly linked to, you know, traumatic experiences. It can be uh, related to medical issues. We understand that there's all these issues and sometimes they have to be handled and dealt with mental health, medicine, and we're all for that. But we also cannot deny that as human beings, there's a spiritual aspect to many of these things. And we always want to see how these, how spiritually where we are, how it could be contributing, contributing to some of these problems, even though it may be the, the direct cause isn't spiritual, spiritual issues can possibly contribute and make some of these issues worse. Or maybe certain spiritual things could make it better. So we're always trying to find that correlation. Now, this all started because we were talking about pride, and then that led, uh, my, my daughter ended up sending me a TikTok video of a very famous pastor saying, hey, anxiety, the cause of your anxiety is your pride, and the, and the way I know this is because God told me. He claims divine revelation that God told him that your anxiety is caused by pride, um, it it, 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 we <laughs> that that immediately started this kind of entire journey trying to work through this, and it's not been smooth, and it's not flow, it's not it's not been flowing very well. But I still think, in spite of its maybe not being put together in such a, a an organized way, I I still think that we've discussed some very important issues. So we we talked about and we I said I thought we were going to talk about pride, but we ended up talking about anxiety. 
We've talked about anxiety. We've looked at some scriptures, Psalm 37, Matthew 6. We were going to look at Philippians 4. But uh, but the whole time I kept telling you this clip from Stephen Furtick, Elevation Church. That's the pastor who preached this sermon where he claimed God told him that your anxiety is caused by your pride. I hope I didn't say your pride is caused by your your anxiety. No, your anxiety is caused by your pride. And he claims God told him that. Uh, The whole time through this, I told you I had the sermon. And so I said, we were going to review the sermon. So in the last episode, we started reviewing the sermon. And once again, things did not go like it didn't just flow because the name of the sermon is when anxiety attacks. So I was ready to go, okay, he's going to talk about anxiety. But instead of talking about anxiety, he really has talked about Satan. And it really raised a million other issues because he basically went with kind of a pretty traditional way Christians talk about Satan, but that Satan can put thoughts in your mind. Satan can do things inside of you. And we raise the question of whether that is biblical, whether that is true. How much can Satan actually do inside of you if you are a child of God? We started raising some of those questions. We we didn't answer all of them. I gave you some some homework to do, and, and we will try to get back to some of that. But clearly, he's going in the direction, ultimately, that Satan causes you anxiety, or Satan is somehow behind your anxiety. Now, later in the sermon, clearly he seems to indicate that pride is the source of your anxiety, but he's getting really close right now to basically be, basically claiming, it seems where he, where what he's implying, or at least where it feels that he's going, is that, hey, Satan is causing your anxiety. Now, of course, though it could possibly make your anxiety worse. Hey, you're suffering from anxiety? Well, it's because of Well, it sounds like later in the sermon, he's going to say it's because of your pride, or it could even be worse. Satan put that in you. I don't know how that would help with your anxiety. I don't know, but we're going to continue to listen and we're going to see how far we can get in this review. There's no way we're going to be able to finish it tonight, which is only going to probably increase my anxiety. I would like to finish it, but there's just no way. Um, There's just no way um, unless I go to like one o'clock in the morning and I I don't necessarily want to do that. So we're just going to see how far we can make it. Um, And he's in first Peter, the text that he is offering up for for this for this sermon is first Peter chapter five. Starting in verse 5, 1 Peter 5, he's going from 5 to 11. 1 Peter 5, 5 through 11 is the text that he is utilizing. He's now talking about how Satan wants to attack us. He's he's kind of getting ready to use kind of an illustration when George Bush on 9-11 was in that elementary school reading a book and then someone had to tell him America's under attack, that Satan is attacking us, and that Peter... And 1 Peter 5 is basically telling this church that Satan is trying to attack them. All right. Now, that's kind of the, that puts us all on the same page. I hope so. And so let's work through this. And we're going to work through this. Sadly, I would like to say we're going to work through this for spiritual reasons, but my motives are probably more fleshly because I just want to be able to, when it's time, not to be filled with anxiety obsessing, compulsing, being compulsive over this. I want to be able to say, okay, I did as much as I could today and I'm going to leave it for tomorrow. Let's see if we can get there. But in the meantime, hopefully something spiritual will come from even though 
maybe I'm not approaching this from the most spiritual perspective. Let's see what we can do. All right. Okay. I, look, I've always said it. I'm just a sinner in front of a microphone or behind a microphone, depending on which way you want to, to, to state it. And I'm just trying to figure out the Christian life with you. So hopefully you're okay listening to a sinner sitting behind a microphone. If you're looking for spiritual perfection and holiness and, per, and someone who's perfect, you're going to have to look elsewhere. But if you're just, just like me, struggling with life and issues, then hey, come on. Let's see, let's see how, what Stephen Furtick had to say about this, and let's see if we think it's biblical or not biblical. Here we go. But um, do you remember when President Bush was reading to the elementary school class, and there's a famous picture of his chief of staff having to go up to him while he's reading a, a book and say to the president, the second plane hit the second tower on 9-11. And he said, America is under attack. And he told the president that according to his account and his record after the fact. He said, America is under attack. Now, Peter is walking up to a church under attack and speaking to them on a personal level. I want you to know that you're under attack. Not just the preacher, because people will come up to me all the time and say, I'm praying for you, preacher. I know the devil wants to take you out. Well, he look right back at him and say, well, I'm going to pray for you too. Write your name down because he'll take whoever he can get. He's after construction workers and sophomores in high school and stay-at-home moms and attorneys prowling around like a roaring lion. And just make sure you remember, we talked a little bit a bit about this in the first episode. I don't want to repeat too much because I'll get emails, people complaining I'm repeating too much. But this is worthy of repetition. This is worthy of repeating. When it comes to the way the church sometimes talks about Satan, sometimes we forget and we talk about him almost as if he's God. Satan is not omnipresent. He cannot be in all places at all times. He is not omnipotent. He's not omniscient. He is not all-powerful. He is not all-knowing. He's not omnipresent. He's not present in all places at all times. Let's make sure we understand that, okay? So so we got to be careful when, like, at that, you know, Satan can't just be everywhere attacking everyone at the same time. Let's just get that clear. Another important thing is so many times we always put the focus on Satan trying to do something to us. Let's remember, the, I think the greatest threat to you is not Satan, which is outside of you. It's the depravity, which is inside of you. Satan can't even, Satan can, is not even omnipresent. There's something that's inside of you that is there 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It's right there inside of you. The battle line for spiritual warfare is not Hollywood, Netflix, this, that. It's not all of this external stuff. The battlefield for spiritual warfare is inside of you. And Satan's primary, primary way of working is he, because he cannot be everywhere at, you know, at all times. He's not omnipresent. He's, he's, he can't, he can't do that. He's not all powerful, but he can utilize the world system to put forth things that our sinful nature are attracted to. 
Our sinful nature, he kind of like, it's like holding up, and I talked about this, kind of like holding up one of those bug zappers, right? And we're just drawn to it because of our sinful nature. He can just put things out there that will draw us away from God into these things that will be destructive to us spiritually. Can't take our salvation, but can greatly hinder us and hurt us. Satan himself may never actually even show up. Christians always say, Satan is doing this. Satan is doing this as if Satan is directly involved. You got to explain what you mean by that because he's not present everywhere at the same time. But he he's doing what most preachers do. And we always put the focus on this external stuff. The issue isn't external. The, the, the issue is internal. Right? Whatever Satan is supposedly doing to you, I will say your depravity inside of you is doing far worse. And and I don't know if I can completely quantify that. I just know that your nature, your fleshly nature is depraved. It hates God. It doesn't want anything to do with God. And it exalts self. And it's the source of all your problems, which makes Satan, what Satan does outside of you so tempting and so powerful because of what's wrong inside of you. All right. So I'm just, I like to emphasize the problem inside of us, but let's see how he handles this. Looking for someone to devour. And I wonder, is it you? I wonder, is it you he's been after with thoughts that repeat themselves over and over again in your mind? Thoughts of worklessness or thoughts of Anxiety. This seems to be Peter's primary focus is that the attack of the enemy often manifests itself in an overwhelming sense of anxiety. Okay, now here's the question Does Satan place thoughts in your mind? Does Satan have the power to place thoughts in your mind, emotions inside of you, and desires inside of you? Does Satan have the ability to do that? Has God said, hey, that's my child. Yes, they're sealed with the Holy Spirit, but Satan, the enemy, can come in and can literally put thoughts in their mind, literally put desires inside of them. Do we believe Satan possesses said power? And so why would God give him that much access to your mind and to your emotions? How are you supposed to combat a spiritual being, because even though he's not omnipresent and all-powerful, he's still a spiritual being. And and God's like, here you go. You can now, you can get, you can have access to their minds. You can have access to their desires. How are you supposed to fight that? Now, does Satan, is it Satan giving you those thoughts or do those thoughts arise from your depraved nature? Is there something Satan does external That causes your internal sinfulness to react in a sinful way. Does Satan give you the anxiety or does God give Satan the ability at times to do things to you externally, which then sets your internal emotions to go maybe in a a negative and sinful direction? This is very important. This is like, I know this is, this whole thing is supposed to be about anxiety when anxiety attacks. So really, if we want to make this about anxiety, does Satan put anxiety in you 
Or does Satan do things external that your anxiety reacts to? And that anxiety comes from, if it's an anxiety disorder, well, that actually comes from all of these tra- traumatic things that happen to you, right? Or medical issues. We, you can read all about anxiety disorders. But if it's just, say, you're not a true anxiety disorder, but just anxiety and worry, what causes you to have anxiety and worry? Now, you could say there could be some spiritual issues there. You're not trusting God. You're not trusting in his sovereignty. You're not looking to God. Maybe it's a lack of faith. Maybe it's a lack of belief. Okay, that's fine. But Satan didn't put the anxiety in you, right? I mean, if Satan is putting the thoughts in your mind, if Satan is putting the anxiety in you, then how can you even be held responsible for the thoughts or the feelings or the emotions? Unless you then blame yourself for letting Satan do so. But how do you know when Satan is showing up to put the thoughts in your brain? Are you supposed to know when he puts the thought in your brain? Are you supposed to then realize, wait a minute, that thought is not right. But if he's putting the thought in your brain, how does your brain going to know that there's a thought in your brain that shouldn't be in your brain? Okay, now, now it gets all convoluted and confusing. All right, let, let's see where else he goes with what Satan supposedly can do inside of you. I know this is the manifestation of the attack. For if it were not the manifestation of the attack, Peter would not singularly lift it in verse 7 as the focal point of his admonition to the church under attack. I feel like teaching today. Are you ready to learn? Give me about 30 minutes because you're under attack and there's some things you need to know about this attack. The good news is… I do know this. Every pastor on earth would love to be able to ask your, to say to the people, hey, I want to teach. Are you ready to learn? Yay! I'm ready to teach. Yeah, yeah. Come on, as a pastor, you got you. Got, come on, you got to tell me. You, you, I know this. I, I would I would love to know that the people are really that excited to learn. Hey, it would be awesome to know that. Okay, but at the same time, then, well, yeah. Some people would say, well, that applauding is just not really right or respectful inside a sanctuary. I can understand why people would say that. Some people say it, it's it's almost becomes performative and expected, so the people just do what is expected. At the same time, you hope there's a little bit of genuineness that they really want to learn. Now, the question is, I'm not here to get into calling all of that into question. I just know that when people do that, that's awesome. And I, I, I am, I'm going to go with the idea that they really are excited to learn. They really are excited to be in church. They're really excited. But what they're about to be taught and what they've already been taught, is it biblical or is it a complete completely almost a superstitious view of Satan and how he works. And they're really going to be led to believe things that's actually going to cause more anxiety than eliminate anxiety. Or are they about to hear a very biblical explanation about Satan and anxiety and how all of this works? Well, you, you can make your own conclusions, but let's see where it goes. It is, it is not an ambush. Peter says that the devil is like a roaring lion. That means he gives you a warning before the warfare begins. Okay, now we got to be careful here. We got to be careful here. 1 Peter 5 8 says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Now, is this supposed to be, hey, Satan operates just like this. Before the battle begins, he will roar so that you will know. Is this supposed to be taken 
and such a very like uh almost a, a, a such a literal way. Now, now I'm not throwing out a literal understanding. I'm saying that you can take this literal so far that you're saying, now this is really laying out how Satan attacks. I don't know. I think it's just trying to tell people Satan, like a roaring lion, a lion that roars is showing its power. You could, we could get into all the possible reasons why a lion would roar. But the, the thing is, is it just trying to demonstrate Satan is dangerous. Satan is powerful. Satan is a threat. Or is it supposed to be like, okay, wait, 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 wait. He's like a roaring lion. Satan will always roar before he attacks. Therefore, it's never an ambush. You always know. I don't know if it's trying to articulate that. I think it's just trying to simply articulate you have an adversary, Satan, and hey, just like you know a roaring lion, how frightening and scary that would be, Satan is just like, is it just trying to find a, a, something, an illustration? It's not trying to lay out a perfect, like everything about a lion, and every, that's exactly how Satan operates. I don't think it's what it's trying to do. Does Satan always roar? I don't know. Mm, I, I, yeah, I don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll keep listening and see where he goes. And so sometimes we act really surprised by things that we go through and ways that we struggle and we come into situations that are harder than we expected them to be and we ask God to do great things in our lives, but the battle begins and we act like we weren't warned. No, Peter said, this lion, the devil, is not silent. He's a roar. Come on, give me your best roar. roar. I've never done this before. I've done a lot of touch your neighbors, but somebody roar at your neighbor. Say, roar. Devil's all up in your face. He'll, he'll let you know it's coming. Okay. I, I, what, whatever you may feel about that, I know a lot of pastors do that. Say this to your neighbor, reach out. Okay, I'm not into all of that. Great. If everybody thinks it's funny that everybody's roaring, I just want to know why lions actually roar. So I'm sorry. I, I know you can say, man, you've got so many problems with your brain, but I just can't let it go. So I'm already looking something up and it appears Roaring is a key component of a lion's social behavior and territoriality. A lion's roar is arguably the world's most iconic animal sound. Roars can be heard from over several kilometers away when conditions are right. Now, here in Abilene, Texas, we have the world-famous Abilene Zoo. Okay, come on. It's not that big a deal. It's, it's really not world-famous. It's, it's not even famous in Texas. It's, it's pretty small, insignificant, and most people have mocked it and made fun of it over the years. However, they have done a lot of work over the years to improve it, and it's becoming, you know, much more respectable. Used to be you would be like, that's a little small-town zoo. What is that nonsense? That's embarrassing. Okay. I always thought there was something kind of, uh, I don't know, maybe I romanticized it a little bit more because I would always go there a lot of times, even as a teenager, and I would just walk around. I don't know. I always thought it's, it was small. It was kind of quaint, quiet. I don't know. It was just kind of cool. Now they've tried to make it more. You can look it up. The Abilene, Texas Zoo. Look it up. But there's two lions there, or at least there used to be. I don't remember how many current lines there are there. There's two. And sometimes in the evening, like if you're there in the evening around 4 p.m., 5 p.m., 
and, and maybe sometimes a little later, um, depending how late the zoo stays open, you'll be walking around. Now, the zoo is a lot busier now than it used to be. It used to be a time you could be walking around that place. You'd be like the only person there. It was kind of cool. But it'd be the evening time. You felt like the sun's getting ready to start going down. And then all of a sudden, this roar would just go across the entire zoo. It would be like, it would scare you. You would stop and almost like, what if that thing is out? I'm going to die. Like, literally, your body would just immediately, I'm going to die. All right. So... But why do they, it, 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 now he, his whole argument is Satan is like a roaring lion and a lion always roars before it attacks. So Satan will always give you a warning before it attacks. I don't know how he's drawing, this is just crazy what he's doing with this. But according to this, and I just went with the first article I found. Roaring is a key component of a lion's social behavior and territoriality, meaning I guess it's trying to mark its territory. A lion's roar is arguably the world's most iconic animal sound. Roars can be heard from over several kilometers away when conditions are right. The sound is deafening and awe-inspiring when heard from nearby. I Look, I'll tell you, it is awe-inspiring. I, I, I don't know if in your zoo you can hear it, but man, in Abilene, Texas, when they – because the zoo is so small, you man – it's scary. I mean, I'm telling you, man, it is crazy. I, I, it is awe inspiring. There's no, 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 no question. And my travels to the bush around Africa, I feel a true adrenaline rush and vulnerability when I hear lions roar at night. Yes. Especially when they're near and particularly when I am camping in a tent. Yeah. It's time to move. It's time to, it's, it's a pretty good idea. You probably shouldn't be wandering around Africa at night. My, lions at night are very different creatures to the sleepy, docile animals that appear during the day. They're active, vocal, vocal, see excellently, excellently in the dark and can be aggressive towards other lions. And of course, when hunting. Roars are used to signal territoriality and to locate distant pride members. Both male and female lines demonstrate ownership of territory via roaring and are unable to gauge the strength of opposition based on the number of roars heard from other groups. See, none of this has anything to do with the lion roars to tell you it's getting ready to attack. It's it's doing things socially. It's marking territory, determining how many people, maybe other, you know, there could be opposition out there. Like, he he's just making stuff up. Hey, lions roar, Satan will roar, and Satan always roars before he attacks. Because 1 Peter 5, 8 says he roams about like a roaring lion. The whole thing is ridiculous, right? Like, I don't even know. Like, sometimes I just wonder what happens every Sunday in churches across America when people take the word of God and say things like this. Hey, you need to write it down. Satan will always roar before he attacks. Why? 1 Peter 5, 8. No, okay. Let's just continue. And what you need to know if you are under attack, and I will not have you raise your hand because perhaps the very people who need this message the most would be the most reluctant to admit that this is for me. But he said, you, when, when you find yourself in a season of attack, that roaring lion is in your face. Now I'm thinking right here, Peter's going to say, run. Because to me, that's the only reasonable advice when you're faced with the roaring lion. Hello, I don't even like dogs very much. Holly's scared of rats. Can you imagine if she saw a lion? 
but he doesn't say run. Instead, he challenges us to resist. And it's a certain type of resistance because he says to those who are under attack, you need to come under the mighty hand of God. I want you to see that phrase because it touched me so deeply in my study. I was hoping to explain it to you for a moment today, the three things that the hand of God represents. This is verse 6. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, an image that would have been familiar for a Jewish audience, for it was with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm that God brought his people out of Egyptian slavery. And Peter wants them to know that same hand of God that has been actively fulfilling his purpose throughout human history is still reigning over your life. Humble yourself under that mighty hand. The hand of God represents his plan. I don't know about you, but I'm thankful that God's plan for my life has prevailed even against my own plan that I thought was better sometimes. How many are grateful for the hand of God? If you're grateful for the hand of God, just wave your hand at me. God's hand. And I know Christianity, this is the way Christianity works. We just say all of these things. We just say, boom, boom. We just say, it. and everybody's like, hey, man, and everybody loves it. And, and there's, and I know that. There are some of us were in the minority of the minority of the minority of the minority of the minority. And I think for many of us, this is why we never feel really comfortable in the church and we never really feel comfortable around Christians. Other Christians will talk this way and everybody will be like, yeah, amen, amen. Or Satan roars. I just trust the mighty hand of God and he will take care of me. Well, I'll go, whoa, slow down. I'm so confused. Wait, 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 wait. You've already in this sermon seemed to elaborate to seem to establish that Satan can literally put thoughts in your mind and literally do these things inside of you. Well, wait a minute. If I'm trusting the hand of God, why would God ever let Satan put those things in me in the first place? So God's going to let Satan put these things inside of me. And then once they get inside of me, what I'm supposed to do is say, okay, God, I trust you. Is God going to remove the thoughts and the emotions from inside of me? Is that how it works? Oh no, I've got these thoughts. I got these feelings. What should I do? Well, wait a minute. If Satan's already messing with my mind, why would my mind then ever register that I should trust in God if Satan's already messing with my mind? Wouldn't the first thing he would put in my mind is don't trust in God? So what can, like if you've already said Satan basically has access to the inside us. Well, if he has access to the inside us, how is the inside me ever going to then stop to realize that some other thing is inside of me and now I need to trust in someone else? Other, like, I don't even know how that even, like, nobody ever explains these. And when you, you're not supposed to see within the church, you're not supposed to ask these questions. No, 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 no. You're just supposed to go, amen. Who cares if it makes any sense? So does Satan have access to me inside or not? And if he has access to me inside, then why would the inside me ever then realize that Satan is doing something inside of me? And now I need to trust God to do something inside of me. But that God, the God that I'm trying to trust to do something inside of me has already let Satan do something inside of me. Now I'm so confused. All right, let, let's continue hand is not like your hand. It's an invisible hand. You can't see it, but you definitely know the effects of it when it moves. Because after you've lived a little while, Peter said, I, I saw what happens in the hand of God, the plan of God. I saw what happened. See, Peter is not writing this as advice unsolicited, and he's not writing this as advice uninformed. Peter is a grown man now, a grown 
Christian man now, getting a little bolder about relaying his advice from his experiences. And who better to tell us about the hand of God than a man who walked with Jesus Christ in the flesh? Who better to describe to us the function of the hand of God than the one who saw his, his face? Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Peter didn't just trace the hand of God. He saw the face of God. And now he says to those who are under attack, up under depression, up under disappointment, dealing with failure, hit rock bottom, don't know what's next, freaking out, crying yourself to sleep at night, feeling all alone. He says to every believer, you've got the upper hand. The hand of God is mighty. The hand of God is strong. The hand of God is over your life. Okay, now any reasonable person would be like, wait a minute, I'm so confused. If I have the upper hand and I've got the mighty power of God, well, then why am I even worried about Satan in the first place? You've got the mighty hand of God and he will take care of you. Well, but you've already said Satan can put these things inside of me. So does God... Allow is the mighty hand of God there. Here's the mighty hand of God. Okay, Satan, go ahead. Put those bad thoughts in their mind. Go ahead. Do this, do this, do this, do this. Okay, okay. Wait, people. Wait, wait. Now here comes my hand. Now I'm going to take care of it all. I know now he's just going to preach and get the emotional reaction, but sometimes you need someone in the church to go, Wait, exa- could you map this out? Could you chart this out for me? Right, because I'm, I'm really confused. On one hand, you've made it sound like Satan can do anything. But on the other hand, you're like, don't worry about it because you're under the mighty hand of God and nothing can happen to you. Well, which is it? Will prevail. His purpose will come to pass. For I know the plans I have for you declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you hope in a future. And if you find yourself... Un- for crying out loud. He's quoting Jeremiah. The plans I have for you to bless you, to prosper. That's for people coming out of Babylonian captivity. That is not for the people in Elevation Church. That's not for you. That's not for me. That is for people coming out of Babylonian captivity. Please stop ripping that verse out of context. I implore you. I beg you. If you're going to deal with something so serious as Satan is out there trying to destroy you, then please, for crying out loud, don't go to Jeremiah where there's a specific promise for those coming out of Babylonian captivity or for those still trapped in Babylonian captivity. Hey, I got a plan for you. I'm going to prosper you. You're coming out of Babylonian captivity. Don't then rip that out of its context and then just throw it at people as if it's a promise for us. That's not going to help anybody trying to figure out, wait a minute, what is Satan doing to me? What's not doing to me? And what does any of this have to do with anxiety? Because now I'm getting anxious listening to him rip scripture out of context and not help me figure any of this out. All right, now, deep breath. This is so calming before bedtime. All right, let's continue. Under attack today, you need to know that the hand of God is guiding you, leading you. That same hand that split the sea open so his people could walk right through it. The hand of God will make a way where there is no way. The hand of God will bring rock, water out of a rock in a dry place. The hand of God is over your life. And he has a plan. All right, so the, the hand of God that can do all of those things, part the Red Sea, do this, do that, do this, do that, do this. Are you now claiming that he's going to do those same things for you? That you're always going to like, hey, 
why then do so many people around the world starve to death and die of thirst every single day, every single year? Like, so what are you claiming? Like, God is present, but are you claiming that that power is going to be manifest that way in your life or my life as somehow a guarantee? (laughs) You got to be careful with this stuff. Okay. All right. Let's see where he's going to go. Plan, the plan of God, the hand of God represents the plan of God, the hand of God represents the provision of God. These all start with the letter P, because that's what I do. The provision of God. And who better to remind a church that is under attack or a believer who is under attack that the hand of God is the place where bread multiplies than the one who saw 5,000 fed with just a few loaves and a few fish? Anytime you see seen a kid's snack pack from Captain D's multiplied into a buffet, you know something about the provision in the hand of God. And Peter was right there, and he saw what happened when they put the bread in Jesus' hand. And so he knew that at times where you feel like you're in a place of lack, that your provision is never dependent upon your, your own ability to provide for yourself or your own ability to create resource for yourself, but anything you put in the hand of God will multiply. Anything you put in the hand of God will multiply. Anything you put in the hand of God, it just keeps coming. It just keeps coming. Do I have any witnesses? You've been through some hard times in your life, but hope kept coming. You've been in some tight places. You felt like you were running out. You didn't feel like you could make it to the next day, but somehow, Blakeney, strength kept coming. Joy kept coming. A tomorrow kept coming in spite of your past, because the hand of God is a hand of provision. And I, man, I've heard this, this so much within Christianity. Always these stories. There's always these stories. You know, provision, provision. God will just give, 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 give. You just put it in His hands, and He'll He'll multiply it. He'll just give, 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 give. And then you fee- see Christians all over the place struggling. They can't do this. They can't pay for this. They can't do this, this, this. And you're like, well, then how does this principle work? Well, then you don't have. A, now they put the blame on you. You don't have enough faith, or you didn't give enough to God, or you got to do this, or you got to do that. It's and it's always this like. Like you, you got to do to get, and if you got, you got to do it the right way, and then you'll get everything. And then there's, you know, story after story. Supposedly, this person, I only had five dollars, but I gave that five dollars, and then next week I got a check for five thousand dollars, and we were able to pay off our car, and everything was great, and now we're, and it just drives me crazy. It drives me crazy as if there's some formula to make it all work that way. Oh, it doesn't. It, there's no guarantee for anything like that. There are Christians who live in abject poverty, who suffer and struggle, especially depending on the geographical location of country in which they find themselves and situations they're in. There are Christians who suffer and die. There's no guarantee that God's going to... Spiritual provision... He, yes, we, he has provided everything we need spiritually. There's no question. We've been blessed with all spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus. And clearly, eternally, we're going to have a new body, no more pain, no more suffering, no more death, and eternal life. All of that is guaranteed. How things work now in the flesh, in this earth, Christians suffer, they get sick, they die, they don't get healing. All I mean, come on, there is no guarantee for all of these things that it's gonna work, but you know, that's this is the way it's preached, and nobody ever really some people will raise their hand and go, and but they'll be like, You just don't have enough faith. And it's like, okay, but whatever. 
and it's a hand of protection. God has me in his grip. Who better to help me see that the hand of God will protect me than the one who tried to walk on water? Well, if I'm in the hand of God and he's got a strong grip and he's going to protect me, but you've already said Satan can be putting all these things inside of you. Well, how is Satan putting anything inside of you if God has you in his hand and he's got a strong grip on you and he's protecting you? Like on one hand, he wants me to be worried and scared because Satan can do all of these things to me. On the other hand, he's like, hey, you're in the hand of God and he's got a strong grip. Well, then how in the world is Satan getting to me? You think God would then have to be opening his grip, putting me down and say, come on, Satan, do what you want. Well, then, <laughs> then what can I do considering then God is letting Satan do it? And my protection just got removed. Then am I supposed to fight Satan in my own strength? He's saying, well, no, God will help you. Well, why would God help me if God is the one who just set the entire situation up? Do you all know the Bible? Go study this story in Matthew chapter 14 where Peter got out there. He's trying to make his way to Jesus. He's coming toward him. And about the time he gets there, because sometimes it's right when you're on the verge that you start to sink. I never saw it before. Can I take a moment? Okay, I'm going to take a moment. You said I could in Matthew chapter 14 because I was just going to mention it, but you act like you came to hear preaching today. I don't know what's happening at University City, but there's some hungry people for the bread of life at Valentine. It says that Peter in the storm got out of the boat, and when he walked out on the water, he did pretty good. Watch this. He came toward Jesus. Y'all got that scripture, Matthew 14? He came toward Jesus, but when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink cried out, Lord, save me. So he's, he cries out before he goes completely under. So he's sinking, but he's not sunk. He's going down, but he's not out. I, it, it fascinates me. It fascinates me because of the reaction this kind of preaching get. Everybody's like, ooh, yeah, yeah, amen, ooh, yeah. Like, like he's saying something so profound. And, and sometimes I'm just like, what are you amening? What, what are you getting all excited about? Like, what, 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 how does any of this even make any sense? But the, but the people get so excited. On one hand, you want to celebrate and so happy that they have this passion and this zeal and they are excited for the word of God. Sometimes you wish churches where they're really getting good doctrine, the people would even act like they're awake. You would like, you sometimes, sometimes, isn't it weird that sometimes it's in the people getting the worst doctrine, the worst exposition of scripture, the worst exegesis of scripture. They're getting nothing, nothing in depth, nothing. They're not getting anything good. They are excited and they're, they're listening and they're responding and and then you got a church where people are getting good in-depth teaching and it it sounds like you're at a funeral nobody you, you you're asking questions nobody will answer nobody's paying any attention and you're like what's even the like what's the deal is it that people get good teaching start taking it so much for granted that they don't even care anymore well it's the other people who are always hungry because they never really get a full meal that they're always excited i don't know is it is the, is the answer to starve your people so that they will be excited for anything you give them even if it's not very good 
I, 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 I've never quite understood it, but sometimes it's in the churches where the teaching is so bad that the people seem to be the most energetic, the most excited. And then it's the churches where sometimes, have you ever listened to those churches where the preaching is really good and you listen to the crowd and you're like, are they dead? And like the pastor's asking questions and nobody's answering and you're like, what is the deal? Like, can someone explain that to me? That, that's I know this is not really the focus of what this is about, but I'm just perplexed. Like, he's just reading Matthew 14. He's about to just turn this into some who knows what allegorical parable. Who knows what he's about to do with it? He's already done some other bizarre. He's already ripped Jeremiah 29, ripped completely out of context. He's not explained this weird contradiction that he's given us. But yet the people are eating it up. They are excited. They're amening. They're responding. They're there. They're, they seem hungry and excited. And you could turn to some other church where it's a great exposition of 1 Peter 5. It's dealing with all the difficulties and people are like, they're sleeping. They don't care. They're not excited. They're not supporting it. They're not doing anything. I don't know, man. That that bothers me. It bo- I'm not saying it should be fake excitement. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying it should be a performance excitement. But for crying out loud, <laughs> can there be something? The lion is prowling, but he has not prevailed. You follow me? Watch this. This is what I never saw. Verse 31 says that immediately that's the word jesus reached out his do it again immediately jesus reached out his immediately jesus reached out his hand notice the construct of the narrative jesus is not walking toward peter peter is walking toward jesus when jesus sees peter falling and hears him crying He reaches out his hand, and Peter is close enough for Jesus to reach. The problem with some of us isn't that we're sinking, it's that we won't stay close enough, come on, for God to get us in his grip. But I came to announce to that lion today, that liar, the devil, that I'm in his grip even when I'm going down, even though the winds and the waves are roaring and raging in my life, I'm in his grip. Somebody shout, I'm in his grip. I'm in his grip. God's got me in his grip. He's got me in his grip. He's he's got me in the hand of his protection. He might let me suffer a little while, but he won't let me stay there. He is my God and I'm in his hand. Humble. Now, wait a minute. Okay. So the way I'm in his grip is I have to stay close enough so it's dependent upon me. God won't get me. He won't be able to catch me. Now, see, this is where you turn Matthew 14, this historical narrative, and you just start spiritualizing this to, to all to no end. Well, this represents this and this represents this. You see, Peter was walking towards Jesus. Jesus wasn't walking towards Peter. All right. So Peter was walking towards Jesus. And the reason Jesus could catch him is because Peter was close enough to be caught. And the problem with some of you is you're not close enough for God to grab onto you. Wait a minute. God is limited. He can't reach me because I'm not close enough. 
What kind of total trash is that? God is, I don't know, all powerful. I think he can reach me wherever I am, whenever he so chooses to. I don't think it's like, you have to be close enough to God for God to get you. If you're too far, God can't reach you. I don't know what God you're serving, but that sounds like a pretty weak God. Well, I don't even know what that means. And if if you're in his grip, well, then you you got to still explain all the things Satan's supposed to get. God will let you. He's not even trying to make this make any sense. Satan can get you, but he can't get you because you're in the grip of God. But yet Satan can do these things to you. I don't know which it is. yourself under the mighty hand of God. Doesn't matter how well you can walk on water. It matters how close you are to his hand. Doesn't matter about your intelligence. It matters about your surrender. It doesn't matter about your ability. It matters about your surrender. See, it all matters about what you do. You do, you do, you do, you do. How close you are, how much you surrender. So God will, God is only there to help you if you meet the requirements. So he needs to articulate what all the requirements are. I got to surrender enough. I got to be close enough. Humble yourself. I'm preaching to somebody. I'm preaching to somebody so straight you can't even nod. You're trying to hold back tears, but God sent a preacher with a message. You might as well go ahead and cry out, Lord, save me. I can't do this on my own. I am not enough by myself. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. He'll lift you up in due time. He'll get you up. He'll he'll lift you up in due time. He'll let you go down low enough to know that you need him and bring you up high enough to let the world know that he's with you. Come on. Come on. Come on. Now there he makes it sound like God's going to do it all, but he's already kind of articulated, we got to do ours. So I don't know which it is. How much do I have to do before God will help me or will God help me even though I can't help myself? I don't know which it is anymore. And what can Satan do? Because supposedly I'm in the hand of God. And what does any of this have to do with anxiety? I don't understand any of this. And I'm going to have to end there with much anxiety because now I know I didn't finish the review yet. Now I got to take a piece of paper and write down the timestamp. Here we go. Mine, it always gives me the minus symbol. Minus 22, 28. Now, I would ask you, now you can be honest with yourself. You can be honest. We, we still haven't. We still don't have a good answer to what Satan can or can't do. We we seem now to realize that there's all these things we have to do, or God won't be able to catch us. He spiritualized Matthew 14 to a point of almost absurdity. He really kind of spiritualized Satan roams about like a roaring lion because he says Satan will always roar before he attacks, but he didn't articulate exactly what that means or how that even works. And he didn't even really articulate, well, wait a minute, when a lion roars, what does a lion signify? And how does that? Oh, he's spiritualizing all of this stuff to ridiculous levels, ridiculous levels. Um, But I, I still don't know what I'm supposed to do with my anxiety. But, but he, he wants to say, if you're suffering, he's supposedly offering you the comfort. And I don't, are you comforted? Because what I've heard 
on one hand, he's telling me God will take care of everything, but it sounds very much that it's my responsibility to make sure I'm close enough to God. How close do I have to be before God will catch me when I sink? I don't know. And how do you know if you're close enough? I, what's the test? Is there, is there a 10 point test to know if I'm close enough? I've got to surrender enough. How do I measure my surrender to know I've surrendered enough so that God will catch me when I start sinking? So I think he said, I have to, it's about my surrender. It's about my closeness. I don't know what else it's about. I forgot the other thing. I think there were three things, but he didn't articulate. So he's just throwing out lots of these like cool little statements that sound spiritual and sound godly. And people will write them down. These little slogans, these little bumper sticker sayings. But when you really break it down, I don't even understand how any of this works. Satan supposedly can do all of these things to me. However, I'm in the grip of God and I'm under the protective hand of God and nothing can touch me. However, God may let me suffer and I could slip out of, I guess, his hand. I can slip out of his hand, but I'm okay as long as I've done these things in order to be close enough. But if I'm already that close, then how did I slip out of the hand in the first place? And how am I slipping out of the hand if God is the one holding me? Has God got poor grip? I don't understand any of it. I don't understand. I don't even know what I'm supposed to do with any of this. Like I'd be sitting there going, I'd have, I would have notes all over the place going, what does any, everyone's cheering. Everyone's amening. Everyone's like Jesus and everyone's going crazy. And they think this is the greatest preaching they've ever heard. And I'm sitting there going, I don't understand anything other than the emotionalism that's happening here. But at least the people are actually alive and excited. So I'm happy that they're excited. I'm sad that they're excited about something once all the emotions are gone, once all the cheering is done, once all of the cliches are kind of forgotten about for a few minutes and they lay down at night and start thinking about how all of this is supposed to work. You would hope they would be like, uh, I don't, I don't really know how any of this is supposed to work. When the bottom of their life falls out, when the roof caves in on them, when the house is sinking, when everything's going, when tragedy strikes, what are they left with other than some cute slogans? You can email me. Newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif at yahoo.com. That's newsif at yahoo.com. That's the news, if at yahoo.com. We will work on this first thing today. <laughs> it's, it's now after midnight. So early, later today, I was going to say earlier today, tomorrow morning, the first thing we do, we'll finish, we, we will try to finish this review. All right. If you missed part one, go back and listen to part one. This is part two. If you think you've got this all mapped out and you know exactly how it works, by all means, school me. Let me know. I think this is a convoluted mess. That's my own personal opinion. Now, I have no peace and I still have, I'm going to obsess, obsessive, compulsive, focusing on, maybe I should just go ahead and do another, maybe I should just stay up all night and keep doing this, but now I'm going to leave it. I take a deep breath and say, I've done what I can do. Hopefully, out of the two hours of review, some positive 
lessons have been found in some of this. I think we've raised more questions than answers. But we have to we have later today to try to bring this review to a dramatic conclusion that maybe even Stephen Furtick himself will land this and it's going to be perfect and the most amazing thing we ever heard. Or if it doesn't land very good and it's a train wreck or a plane crash, whatever allegory, illustration we want to use, hopefully from that wreckage, we can find something of benefit from it. All right. Thanks for listening. Again, you can email me newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. That is a, this is your special, I was going to say late night episode of today's focus. But in reality, I almost started our music. In reality, it's not a special late night episode now. It's now a special early morning episode because we're ending this on Friday, August the 4th at 12.03, I believe it's 12.03, 12.03 a.m. So thank you for tuning in for what started as a late night episode of the Today's Focus podcast series, and it's turned into an early morning Today's Focus episode. And hopefully somehow in all of this, you've got plenty to focus on and something positive will come from it. Thanks for listening. Everyone have a great morning. God bless.